0: My name is Mike Tucker. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Life. We've been going through the Gospel of Jacob. Uh, and uh, by the way, as we go through the scriptures today, I'll be uh, reading out of the NET version. Uh, I have a confession to make. No, it's not that I'm a closet Lord of the Ring fans, Lord of the Rings fan. I, uh, <laughs> uh, but I do confess to liking stories of revenge. Of payback, I do not advocate people plotting revenge or taking payback, but I like the stories. I like the movies where the good guy goes and rescues the people who have been kidnapped or hurt, and then he goes after the bad guys and gives them gives them what they get i like uh, I like those kinds of stories in fact there 's an old proverb uh, about revenge, not from the book of Proverbs. But I have a a video clip here that I'd like to show you here. Ah, Kirk, my old friend. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. Yeah, there you go. It's very cold in space. Okay, I know I have a Star Trek problem, but... I don't care, I embrace it. Uh, there's a story that's told about a fellow uh, who would go to work every day, and most days he'd bring a package lunch with him to work. He'd put it in the refrigerator in the break room, and then when it came time to go get his lunch, it was gone. It had been stolen. It turns out that uh, several people's lunches were being stolen. And it continued to happen day after day until he decided... I'm going to do something about it. And as it happens, he worked as a chemist, so he came up with a liquid that he could spray on his packaged lunch that, once dry, you couldn't see it. In fact, you would only be able to see it under a blue light. So he sprayed his packaged lunch, he went to work, put it in the refrigerator, and lunchtime came, and behold, the lunch was gone. And now he had his chance. He took his blue light, he went from person to person, from station to station, shining his blue light on everybody. And finally, he found the evil villain covered with dye on his shirt, pants, hands, arms, and perhaps most satisfyingly, on his face. (laughs) The workplace cheered that the absconder had been found and his crimes revealed. Our hero was hailed, and the villain, well, he made plans to find a different line of work and to take a long shower. We're going to look at an incident in the life of Jacob today. It's in Genesis 29, 15 through 35. And while it's not strictly a story of revenge, Jacob the deceiver is himself deceived. Deceived in a well-planned, beautifully executed deception with a bit of payback. The story's not just or even necessarily mostly about deception or about payback, though that's the main feature of the passage. The story gives insight to how God deals with his sometimes faithless people, and how he accomplishes his work and plan through and with those people that he has called, and even in Jacob's case, despite their failure to trust God. The story is also about how God works in a particular person who is not Jacob. With apologies to Admiral Akbar, the title of the sermon today is, It's a Trap. We'll divide the passage into two parts the trap and then the god of the trap. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are Lord and that there's nothing that escapes your notice. There's nothing that escapes your plot, your planning. There's nothing escapes, Father, what you're going to get done and what you're going to get done through your people and in your people as you did with Jacob. Open our hearts this morning, Father, to your word. Give us clarity and insight. And we ask, Father, that you'd make us more like Jesus Christ in your name. Genesis twenty nine, fifteen through 30. We're going to start talking about the trap. But before we get into the passage itself, some review is appropriate. You know the story. Jacob with his mother, Rebekah, deceived both Isaac, his father, and Esau, his brother, to gain the blessing of the firstborn. Rather than trusting God to fulfill the prophecy that he gave Rebekah, that the older brother would serve the younger, and that Jacob would be the one God chose to carry on the line of promise that began with Abraham. And as we approach our passage today, Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau, who had vowed to kill Jacob over that deception. And through even more deception, Rebecca having lost Esau's affection and concerned that Esau would kill Jacob, she went to Isaac to order Jacob to go to the land of his relatives to get a wife. And the purpose was to find Jacob a wife, but it was also to get Jacob away from Esau. Well, Isaac did that. He blessed Jacob, reminding him of the promises of God to the family of Abraham and the promises of descendants and land, and sent Jacob on his way. You know, we've seen a lot of Jacob and his lack of trust in God. We've seen it in the deception that he carried out. And we've seen, we've seen it in Jacob's reaction to the dream that God gave him while Jacob was on the run. Caleb covered Genesis 28 last week and covered that, covered it well. But I want to have it fresh in our minds. In the dream, God gave the same promises to Jacob. It was a personal encounter. He gave the same promises to Jacob as he did to Abraham and Isaac about descendants and land. And in addition, God promised to bring Jacob back to Canaan. In effect saying that he would protect Jacob from Esau. Jacob's first response to was astonishing, that God would communicate with him like this. Jacob leapt to the idea that this place, the place he was at, that he named Bethel, was the house of God. It's where God would dwell. Jacob misinterpreted the dream, thinking that the place he was at was where God lived, and it was a place where Jacob could go up to God. And in this Jacob was expressing some pagan thinking. More importantly, Jacob did not respond with faith to the unconditional covenant that God made with him. Rather Jacob's response as Caleb said was very bad. Jacob made a vow really, he made his tried to make his own covenant with God. Where God promised Jacob what he would do for Jacob unconditionally, Jacob told God what God needed to do for him. While the promises God made with Jacob were unconditional, Jacob's vow, his own covenant, carried all kinds of conditions that God must perform. Jacob made what we could call an if-then covenant. Let's read that passage, Genesis 28, 18 through 22. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed near his head and set it up as a sacred stone. Then he poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, although the former name of the town was Luz, Jacob made a vow saying, if God is with me and protects me on this journey that I am taking and gives me food to eat and clothing to wear and I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will become my God. Then the stone that I have set up as a sacred stone will be the house of God and I will surely give you you back a tenth of everything you gave me. So Jacob was saying, in effect, hey God, I'm really glad you met me here, this sacred place, this house of yours, If you protect me, especially from Esau, and if you feed me, and if you clothe me, and if you bring me back to my father's house, then I will follow you. Then you will be my God. This is not trust. This is a negotiation. In contrast, trust that God will do what he says he will do is found in Abraham when God first called him back in Genesis 12 with the same unconditional promises to trust him and to go to a country that God would show Abraham. The scripture says that at that, Abraham left just as the Lord told him to do. Well, the trap is now set. Genesis twenty-nine, fifteen through 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, Should you work for me for nothing because you are my relative? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters, the older one was named Leah, and the younger one Rachel. Leah's eyes were tender, but Rachel had a lovely figure and a beautiful appearance. Since Jacob had fallen in love with Rachel, he said, I'll serve you seven years in exchange for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban replied, I'd rather give her to you than to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked for seven years to acquire Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love, his love was, for her was so great. So we've called Jacob a deceiver, that's what he is. But as we read this and as we go through the passage, I think it might be correct to say that Laban is a master deceiver. To this point, Jacob had been working for Laban for a month. Evidently it was work that was productive for Laban, and he wanted to hang on to Jacob for as long as he could. Jacob had met Rachel, fell in love with her, he wanted Rachel for his wife, and Laban knew all of this. And I believe in this he saw an opportunity. So he hatched this elaborate plan that played itself out over the next 14 years. The passage lets us know that what both Jacob and Laban knew, Rachel was the younger daughter, Leah was older. Rachel was beautiful, physically beautiful. No mention here is made about her character. Leah, on the other hand, had tender eyes. Now some versions translate that Hebrew word tender as weak or dull or sickly. And depending on context, the word can have a positive or a negative meaning. Here, it's clearly negative, being contrasted with Rachel's beauty and her desirability and suggesting that Leah was neither. The word, by the way, Rachel means you, as in a young lamb. The word Leah probably means cow. Rachel likely grew up favored in the family because of her beauty. I can imagine all kinds of negative impacts the perception of Leah's appearance would have on her family and on Leah herself. I can imagine Laban sitting around the the dinner table saying to Leah, Leah, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to get you married off. Why couldn't you have been as pretty as your sister? Jacob seems willing to do almost anything to have Rachel he proposes uh, to Laban to work for seven years in order to get Rachel for his wife. This was, a effect, a bride price. A bride price was typically given as a sort of insurance policy to provide for the bride if the husband died or if he left. A typical bride price was 30 or 40 shekels of silver. Ten shekels of silver was equivalent to a year's wages for a shepherd, which is what Jacob was. Jacob was paying about twice what a normal bride price was. I expect Laban was internally jumping for joy at Jacob's offer. Yet Laban essentially said, sure, let's do that, without ever actually making an agreement. On the other hand, Jacob may have also been internally jumping for joy at what seemed to him a mere pittance. Only seven years of labor to get this stunningly beautiful woman he desired so much. And I don't want to give Laban too much credit, but I think he, at this point he had already planned what he would do in seven years. The trap had been skillfully set. And there's Leah watching all of this take place. Genesis 29, 21 through 24. <clears throat> Finally, Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife for my time of service is up. And I want to sleep with her. So Laban invited all the people of that place and prepared a feast. In the evening, he brought his daughter Leah to Jacob, and Jacob slept with her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. The trap is triggered. Seven years of hard labor had passed. Jacob barely noticed it. He was ready to collect on his wages. The work has been done. Now it's time seems like he probably rushed up to Laban and demanded Rachel that Jacob called her his wife reflects the ancient thinking that once engaged a couple was married even though they hadn't started making a home together there's a parathetical note in verse 24 about Zilpah, Laban gave Zilpah as a servant to Leah that probably happened after the, uh, the marriage, after the first day of the feast and it's included in the story to prepare the reader for some importance of Zilpah later on. The same thing said about Bilhah, Rachel's servant. But these verses that we just read give us a glimpse into what an ancient wedding was like. An ancient wedding was a contract between two families, not unlike a business transaction. The contract, or the signing ceremony, was a feast. It was a feast that lasted seven days. The nature of the feast was a celebration, but the character of the feast is found in the Hebrew word for feast. The word means feast or banquet, but it also means drinking. One Hebrew dictionary defines the word as a drinking bout, a long period of drinking, alcoholic beverages to excess, seven days of drinking. Now there's a larger larger purpose to the seven days, it's called a bridal week. And as we'll see in a bit, once the festivities of the first night are complete, the father of the bride would walk his veiled daughter, and the daughter would have been veiled the entire night. He walked his daughter to the tent of the husband. The husband would take a cloak, place it over the daughter's, now his wife's, shoulders, and they would enter the tent and consummate the marriage. And while the wife would no longer be veiled after this, after the, uh, the first night, the new couple would enter to their tent each of the following six nights for the purpose of giving the couple every possible chance of having a child. The trap has been triggered, and now the trap is revealed. Genesis 29, 25-27. In the morning Jacob discovered that it was Leah. (laughs) Whoops. So Jacob said to Laban, What in the world have you done to me? Didn't I work for you in exchange for Rachel? Why have you tricked me? Well, it's not our custom here, Laban replied, to give the younger daughter, in marriage before the firstborn, complete my older daughter's bridal week, then we'll give you the younger one too in exchange for seven more years of work. (laughs) Wow. So here's Jacob, that first morning, sleeping late, I'm sure he was as drunk as he could possibly be, groggily waking up, certainly hungover, but likely thinking good thoughts. He is relieved and he was overjoyed to finally have been done with that seven years. And now he had Rachel. I can imagine him slowly turning over to look at Rachel's beautiful face without the veil. And as he does, well, one preacher, uh, which I stole this from, I think... Uh, Jacob might have said, good night, nurse, it's the wrong woman. (laughs) Yeah, whoops. The Hebrew simply says emphatically, in the morning it was Leah. Well, it was Leah. And I think Jacob knew immediately that Laban had deceived him. Imagine Jacob's terror over this Very unpleasant surprise in the realization that he'd been duped and that he'd been taken in. He had labored seven years for nothing. And there was nothing he could do about it. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, Leah was there watching all this happen. What Jacob said to Leah when he saw her, well, we don't know, of course. He may have said nothing at all at the shock of it. But what about Leah? What was her part in this? Did Laban force her into silence and demand she go along with this deception? Was Leah just too shocked or embarrassed, afraid to say anything while the deception was unfolding? Was she a willing participant, perhaps seeing this as her last best chance to get married? What was Leah thinking? What was she feeling when Jacob realized it was her and he ran out of the tent to confront Laban? Well, Jacob went to Laban. Probably yelled at him. Asked him why he had done this. He had worked seven years so he could have Rachel. Why have you tricked me? The Hebrew word for trick is means to desert or abandon, or to betray. How might we describe Jacob's emotions at this point? Well, Proverbs gives us a clue. Proverbs twenty-six, eighteen through nineteen. Like a madman who shoots firebrands and deadly arrows, so is a person who has deceived his neighbor and says, Was I not only joking? Jacob had been hit with firebrands and deadly arrows. It seems likely at some point during the conversation, conversation, Jacob remembered the deception that he committed on his father Isaac and his brother Esau. And he remembered how Esau had vowed to kill him. We are meant to remember Jacob's deception here, as Jacob was meant to remember it. The word translated tricked is a cognate of the word translated deceit in Genesis 27-35, which describes Jacob's deception. God was showing Jacob his sin, and based on what happens later, Jacob didn't get it. Well, Laban replies, It seems very calmly, reminding Jacob of what he would have known, that it was customary to marry off the older daughter first, but it wasn't a requirement. This is Laban's stated motive, but Laban's real motive is clear in the next sentence. Complete the bridal week, he says, the seven days with Leah, and then you can marry Rachel, if you work for me another seven years. Another if-then arrangement. If deception were an art form, Laban would be a Michelangelo. Genesis 29, 28-30 Jacob did, did as Laban said. When Jacob completed Leah's bridal week, Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Jacob slept with Rachel as well. He also loved Rachel more than Leah. And then he worked for Laban seven more years. Well, Jacob is trapped. Jacob has no recourse. He did what Laban had planned for all along. Laban got both his daughter Mary's, and now he got a total of 14 years worth of labor out of Jacob. Jacob got Rachel, but he also got Leah, whom he did not want, and he had to work an extra seven years, which I imagine were done in anger and resentment. Jacob did not have, the passage says, the same kind of love for Leah that he did for Rachel. And in verse 31, we'll see in a minute, some version says that that Jacob hated Leah. It's probably better to understand that Leah was unloved by Jacob. One version says that Leah was neglected by Jacob. But the picture we get here is conflict and pain. Conflict between Jacob and Leah, conflict between Rachel and Leah, Jacob gave his attention and preference to Rachel. How did Leah handle this in this household where she knew that Jacob never wanted her and never loved her? What were the dynamics like in that household? Proverbs helps us out again. Proverbs 30, 21 through 23. Under three things, the earth trembled, and under four things, it cannot bear up. Under a servant who becomes king, under a fool who becomes stuffed with food, under an unloved woman who becomes married and under a female servant who dispossesses her mistress. We've seen this before. Remember Abraham with Sarah and Hagar? It would be fair to say that Abraham cared for Hagar, but there was still a great deal of conflict in that family. You may remember Elkanah and his two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Hannah became the mother of Samuel. There was conflict there too. But here we have Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, and whether big or small, I imagine just about every day there was conflict. God sees much more than the day-to-day. Both Rachel and Leah were held in high esteem in Israel, speaking to Boaz about his new wife Ruth in Ruth 4.11. All the people who were at the gate and the elders replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. May you prosper in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. And this leads us to the God of the trap. Genesis 29, 31 through 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to become pregnant while Rachel remained childless. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has looked with pity upon my oppressed condition. Surely my husband will love me now. She became pregnant again and had another son. She said, because the Lord heard that I was unloved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. She became became pregnant again and had another son. She said, now this time my husband will show me affection because I have given birth to three sons for him. That is why he was named Levi. She became pregnant again and had another son. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. That is why she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. In this household of conflict where Leah is unloved and where Jacob is at best, reaped what he sowed, yet no closer to knowing God, the God who called him and made the promises promises of descendants and land, we can learn a few things. We can learn that God accomplishes his plan in and through those he calls, even if those he calls do not acknowledge or trust God. Jacob negotiated with God to get what he wanted, but Jacob got much more than he wanted and got what he did not want. God was impressing on Jacob the damage deception can do. But this is just one step by God working to accomplish his plan in Jacob. Jacob would learn. For example, many years after this, it was time for Jacob and his now large family to move to Egypt to live with his son Joseph and escape the famine in Canaan. Genesis 46, 2-5, through five, God spoke to Israel, that is Jacob, in a vision during the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He replied, Here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, where I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will certainly bring you back from there. Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob started out from Beersheba. Sounds a little bit like what happened with Abraham, what he did when God first called him. Abraham left just as the Lord told him to do. Then Jacob started out from Beersheba. Jacob is beginning to trust God, and then later on, Jacob recognized and affirmed God's promises genesis forty eight two through four When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to see you, has come to you, Israel regained strength and sat up in his bed. Jacob said to Joseph, "The sovereign God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, "I'm going to make you fruitful and will multiply you." I will make you into a group of nations and I will give you this land to your descendants as an everlasting possession. Jacob figured out what that dream was all about. And then finally, Jacob trusted God. Hebrews eleven twenty-one by faith. Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped as he leaned on his staff. Second, we learn that God sees if, even if we don't. Our passage says that God saw Leah was unloved. God blessed Leah and gave her four children, including Judah. Judah was the head of one of the tribes of Israel, and it was from the tribe of Judah that the Messiah came. God works his plan. Leah would go on to have six of Jacob's 12 sons. And then third, God draws God had personally appeared to Jacob, and for a long time, Jacob didn't trust him, but continued to draw him. But look at Leah. Leah had four children that took at least four years, but in that time, she grew in her relationship with the Lord as God drew her. The first child was named Reuben, which means, look, a son. Leah says that God saw her oppressed condition, and with this birth, she had hoped that Jacob would love her. He didn't. Leah's second son was named Simeon, which means hearing, because Leah believed that God heard her, suggesting that she prayed to the Lord. Leah named the third child Levi, which means to join. Leah was hoping the three boys would now cause Jacob to join her and to give her attention. He didn't. The fourth child, as we said, was named Judah, which means praise. But now Leah was not just hoping Jacob would love her, Now she declares that she would praise the Lord. Rather than seeking attention from Jacob, she turned her attention to the Lord. And over at least four years of God seeing her and hearing her, she recognized God's love for her and his attention to her. Leah came to know the God of Abraham and Isaac before Jacob did. I'd like us to consider a couple of things. First, consider that we see Jacob had this big struggle with sin, particularly with deception. Jacob had what Rooted calls a stronghold. By the way, if you don't know, Rooted is a 10-week, fairly intensive study where you go on a journey that takes you from knowing God to communicating with God, to dealing with suffering, to dealing with your money, to dealing with spiritual strongholds and more. Spiritual stronghold is a sin, but not just a sin, it's a pattern of sin. It's a pattern of sin that just gets a hold of you, like it did with Jacob. The enemy has you trapped with that sin. Jacob was trapped. Some sins that can become strongholds in a believer's life are things like bitterness or idolatry, not worshipping little idols, but worshipping things other than God. It could be jealousy, sexual immorality, fear, pride, deceit, and deception among others. There was a stronghold in my life. It was pride, and I'm not going to stand here today that I no longer have any problem with pride, but it is no longer a spiritual stronghold in my life. It doesn't rule me. It doesn't trap me. Overcoming a stronghold does not normally happen all at once. It takes confession, surrender, accountability, and reliance on the Holy Spirit. If you have a spiritual stronghold in your life right now, I'd like to begin to give you a lifeline. And if you do, just pray this in your heart with me. Father, I come before you in the name of Jesus. I recognize the power you have given me by the shed blood of Jesus to demolish spiritual strongholds in my life. I confess that I have given foothold to sin, and I renounce the sin in my life that has become such a stronghold. I claim the truth of the scriptures by the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. Through your power, I take back The ground I surrendered to the enemy. I pray you will enable me to trust and obey your Holy Spirit so that this area of my life will be in conformity to the image of Christ. Amen. Well, if you prayed that, it's just the beginning of overcoming your spiritual stronghold. And if you want to pursue this, if you want to work at getting the spiritual stronghold taken care of, uh, would you see me or Caleb or the elders or Come up here right after we end today and pray with the prayer team. We can help you uh, begin to deal with that stronghold. And by the way, you can be on the lookout for the next rooted group that's going to form in a month or two. And then second, consider this. I expect most of us have experienced some of what Leah experienced. I remember pain and rejection. I remember not being loved and not being cared for. And it may seem a small thing, but I was nearly always picked last when it came to choosing sports teams in school. After a while, that gets a little tiresome. Perhaps you've been neglected or abused as in a child or an adult by a parent or someone else. Perhaps a spouse or a loved one told you they did not care for you or they did not want you or they did not love you and they, or they just rejected you. Perhaps someone you cared for. Or someone you just wanted to be friends with brushed you off. Perhaps you've been excluded from a group. Perhaps someone you trusted betrayed your trust, or perhaps worse, deceived you. Perhaps you've been laughed at or ridiculed. Perhaps you've been persecuted. Leah knew God heard her. I want to remind you that God hears you. God regards your prayers as if they were a sweet-smelling incense. God hears you when you pour out your heart to him, even if you can't express in words the ache of your heart. Charles Spurgeon said this about God hearing. He says, because God is the living God, he can hear. Because he is a loving God, he will hear. Because he is our covenant God, he has bound himself to hear. Leah knew God saw her. I want to remind you that God sees you. Not from some far off place, but from because he is omnipresent, he is always near you. God sees you and he sees your condition. He sees your rejection or your pain or your loneliness. God sees all of your steps and all of your stumbles. In Man Cave, we've been studying on Saturdays the book The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And as it happens... Just yesterday, we considered the chapter of of, uh, God's omnipresence. A.W. Tozer says this, This doctrine of the divine omnipresence personalizes man's relation to the universe in which he finds himself. This great central truth gives meaning to all other truths and imparts supreme value to all his little life. God is present, near him, next to him. And this God sees him and knows him through and through. At this point, faith begins, and while it may go on to include a thousand other wonderful truths, these all refer back to the truth that God is, and that God is here. Leah praised God, which suggests she knew that God loved her. God loves you. In the gospel is that even while you were sinning, and while God knew you were sinning, Christ died for you. Christ lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. That you may be a part of God's eternal family in Christ. As Jesus said, to do that, you must only believe. Caleb said last week that we are in a condition of being blessed as believers by God. He mentioned that the the blessings of the Beatitudes are not something that we have to aspire to. They're something we have to work for. They're already ours. I want to highlight three Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit means at least two things. One, that a person knows that they have nothing to offer God. Second, poor in spirit means that such a person is often oppressed or put down or rejected or deceived. Jesus said about those people, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. If you are in Christ, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Again, two ways to think about this. You mourn over your sin. You know you're a sinner. You know you have nothing to offer to God. And you mourn over that. But also, you mourn because you've been persecuted, or you've been excluded, or you've been betrayed. About those people, Jesus said, for they will be comforted. If you are in Christ, you will be comforted. And may I say, God comforts now. Jesus said blessed are the meek meek means to be gentle humble unimportant the meek have no position or power and are often taken advantage of they are abused rejected, left alone, not heard not seen by most people Jesus said about the meek for they will inherit the earth if you are in Christ you will inherit the earth One of my favorite songs is by a group named GLAD. The song uh, is titled Be Ye GLAD and expresses, I think, some of what we have talked about today. I want to read just a portion of it. Now from your dungeon a rumor is stirring, though you've heard it again and again. Now, but this time, your cell keys are turning, and outside there are faces of friends. Though your body lay weary from wasting and your eyes show the sorrow they had, Oh, the love that your heart is now tasting has opened the gate. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Father God, we are glad. You have saved us. You have redeemed us. You have brought us into your kingdom and you have promised eternal life. Eternal life with you. Eternal life with Jesus Christ. And you have promised to deal with our sin, which you did through Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for doing all that. Thank you for loving us. And Lord, thank you for likely a seeing us and hearing us. Thank you for lifting us up. And Lord, when we are abused, or rejected, or deceived, betrayed, may we remember the Beatitudes, may we remember that we are blessed in you, and may we remember that you love us like you love Leah. In Jesus' name, amen.